We're going to jump into God's Word. Uh, if you've got a Bible on you, why don't you grab it? If not, the words will appear behind me. We're into Philippians 2. We're at kind of the second half of that chapter now as we've been making our way through uh, this book throughout the summer. Those of you that have been with us, this is our summer series. Uh, we're trying to walk through the book of Philippians over these summer months. We've had all sorts of great people speak into it. Jess did a phenomenal job last week. Uh, and so we're into Philippians 2, verses 19 to 30. And this is God's word. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself, because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me, and I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs." For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. So then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. And we thank God for his word that still speaks to us today. So we're into the fourth week of this particular series. The name is Joy. And the subtitle that we were going for on this series was A Colony of the Heart. For those of you that have maybe studied or have walked through Philippians as a book before, it's a book that really gives us a picture of our belonging to a community of heaven. Our belonging to an alternative people, distinct and different, marked by different values, even though we maybe walk through the same things as the world around us, we look different as we do. This is a colony of people living with a different vision in mind. And this vision captures our hearts and leads how we live, and that's why we're a colony of the heart. Colony living through resilience, humility, suffering, faith, confidence, and so on and so on and so on. And today, the focus of this community is joyful partnership. Today, we're talking about joyful partnership. Now, that's kind of an interesting topic, right? Because friendship, in the broader sense of partnership, right? Friendship is one of those things that runs very central to all of our lives, doesn't it? When you think about defining things, defining moments, it's people, really. It's people that are in your life. And yet, when you think about it, friendship is also such a mysterious thing. I mean, throughout most of my time in school, right, and even onwards from there, I had four or five really close friends, right? I met them 
them in my first year when I was at BRA. Uh, and they go on to be such a consistent, brilliant part of my life right up to today, right? And yet my first encounter with those guys was we all got hauled into the headmaster's office, okay? We, we, something had happened. We were all there. We all get hauled in, right? And I remember listening to how these guys spoke to the headmaster and speaking out loud. Like I could hear the words come out of my mouth like, these guys are so weird. What a bunch of weirdos. Little did I know that these guys would become my best mates. Maybe that makes me as weird as I find them. Anyway, friendship, right? I see you now looking around at your best mates going, you are in fact a weirdo, right? And there's so many quotable and cringy things out there on the topic of friendship, right? I mean, just so many memes, okay? Every time I go to my in-law's house, there's this little wooden piece of art that's in the downstairs toilet, right? It's kind of right at eye level when you're going to the loo. And it says this, friendship is reaching out for someone's hand and touching their heart. Oh, cute. Or we'll say things like, friends are the family you choose. Or you'll say things like, that's what friends are for, don't you? Friendship and all of the kind of things that revolve around it, it's such a big part of what makes us who we are. Now, the internet is full of a thousand memes. I realize as I say that, all of you are going to go immediately to your phones to look at them, right? But go with me, right? Friendship. We have close friends, school friends, football friends, Christian friends, drinking buddies, friends with benefits, gay friends, and on and on and on and on and on. Nowadays, we have such a scattered, fragmented approach to friendship in our world. We have friends for every circumstance and friends for every occasion. And things are probably worse right now because of the pandemic, right? I was reading a Guardian article last week, the title of which was this, it's time to be friends again, but can you remember how? And that probably kind of symbolizes the moment that we're in, right? As we get to be close to people again, we get to move out of what has been our own space and our own heads for about 18 months. Like, do we remember how to do friendship? And the thing is, we live in a world that talks a lot about friendship and yet at the same time continues to be the most radically individualistic culture in human history. These two things don't go well together, do they? Friendship and radical individualism. How do do these two things work? And this seeps into how we make friends, okay? A recent New York Times article gained a lot of negative press because it suggested that COVID had presented us with an opportunity to reset our friendships, right? Foregrounding valuable friendships and backgrounding code for cutting off ones that don't work for you anymore. The writer of this article wrote this. Indeed, depressed friends make it more likely that you'll be depressed. Obese friends make it more likely that you'll become obese. And friends who smoke or drink a lot, make it more likely that you'll do the same. The gist of which was, get rid. Brutal, right? And it gained a massive amount of negative press. But the thing, and and all of that very much due, except the internet is full of memes, normally put out by people in some passive-aggressive mood that they whack out on Facebook or Twitter when they've had a falling out with someone that says something like this, it's time to distance yourself from the people who let you down, the inconsistent ones, it's time to start loving yourself, right? I'm saying that because that appeared in my feed in the last week. And lots of us believe that, don't we? We believe it. In other words, we'll do friendship when it suits me. When it benefits me, when it doesn't cost me or disappoint me, we'll do it when it suits me. 
And yet in the time that Paul wrote this letter to the Philippians, friendship was a much more significant affair then than it was for us now. It was a deep thing. It was almost contractual in the way that it worked. It bonded people strongly together. It was nearly always marked with a form of social reciprocity, right? Which was marked by mutual giving and receiving, okay? It was wired into how they did friendship. It was the expectation at the start. Your enemies became my enemies. Your successes became my successes. Your suffering became my suffering, right? That's not the sort of thing you just sever when it suits you. And ghost people for then on. And in the midst of this deep nature of friendship and relationship, the New Testament had this term. We've talked about it a number of times on this series. Koinonia. Koinonia. It's like fellowship is how it's normally presented, right? But it's less like, as Lucy Ray said, the fellowship that maybe some of us experienced growing up in Presbyterian churches. You know, the, after this morning service, there'll be fellowship in the minor hall. That sort of thing, right? It's less like that and more like the fellowship of the ring, right? It's like we are doing something together, right? It's more like partnership. As N.T. Wright said, there is a Messiah way of life, and it is together. And this whole letter of the church to the church in Philippi, right, it's written in this context of koinonia. You can't get away from it. It's, it's the bed that sits under all of the things that Paul writes between Paul and this church that had shared a life together in the mission of God. It's a picture of joyful partnership. And today's passage really, while we're reading it, today's passage really is about three leaders, their relationships, and their joyful partnerships shared as part of the Philippian story. And as we read it today, while we're on this topic, I really want us to look at two of the pictures that Paul paints of partnership as he writes, okay? And they're these, father and brother. He paints two pictures in this, father and brother. And the first of those is Father. These are these verses again, verses 19 to 24. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare, for everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself, because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope. Therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. You see, from the very start of this passage, we get to see that the men that we're dealing with are set up as leaders to be followed, okay? That's one of the things about this little passage, right? They're set up as model Christians, okay? If Christ is our model, then these are model Christians. And so we have Paul, all right? And perhaps of all the characters of the Bible, sometimes even I think even more so than Jesus, Paul is the one that the church gets to know best, right? The church spends so much time digging into letters that he wrote that we really get to know who Paul is and we look at his life and Paul had this incredible ability to be both strong and assert authority one minute and then the next minute to be like soft and loving and caring I mean take for example it's Paul who writes 1 Corinthians a book chock full of hard words on difficult subjects it's a hard book to read it's a hard book to preach it's just hard And yet, it's the same Paul that writes that passage 
used at more weddings than anything else. 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind. Love does not envy, it does not boast. It's the same Paul, hard and soft. And Philippians is, if you like, a letter where we get to peer into his heart and see what really makes Paul tick. And so obviously, one of those things is partnership. It's so obviously one of the things that that makes him tick. And in this first section, it's about his partnership with Timothy, okay? The first section is Timothy. Second section is Epaphroditus. And again, right, there's lots written about Timothy. There are, after all, two pastoral letters to him included in the Bible. Paul had a significant impact on his life and his faith. They were really close. He was with him in Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, Corinth, Ephesus. He was even with him in prison in Rome. They spent lots of time together. And most often, if Paul had a message to send to another place, it was Timothy who he entrusted to carry it. And in verse 20, we get one of those memorable lines of this letter. When we were carving up uh, the book of Philippians to kind of send out as a kind of preaching platform for this series, uh, whenever we did that, I kind of had a key quote from each of the sections that we sent. And whenever you break it down and it's like looking at you like a preaching guy, there's so many memorable quotes in Philippians, right? Like ones that we all read, ones that are out there, ones that they taught on at church and at youth fellowships and all that. Philippians is full of them. And this one is this. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. I have no one else like him. I have no one else like him. And you see, on the face of it, when you read it, right, we pretty quickly think that he's saying something like, there's no one like him, right? We, we think it's, it's kind of like we would say it, it's as it's written, like it's some form of personal devotion or testimony to this guy that he loved, right? But actually, it's more like a statement about his quality as a leader, his outlook, his vision, and his concern. No one like him is actually better translated as like sold or equal sold. I have nobody else of equal soul. And now we're getting to the heart of what he's actually trying to say. In other words, Timothy was the guy that Paul could count on to carry the deepest concerns of his heart to others. He wasn't just willing. He wasn't just, you know, a guy that was always up for it. He was equal souled. Really? This is about likeness. The father-son question in this case is really about likeness. And joyful partnership, it has an element of likeness going on, right? And we shouldn't be surprised because in verse 22, Paul draws the father and son picture himself. And you know, sometimes I think we need to be reminded that the Bible isn't for the reserves of scholars to pour over or just a rule book for believers to try and follow. The New Testament is written from real people in a very real world. This is one of these moments where we just get to look at the humanity of it all. He really loved Timothy. And Timothy was really like him. And this partnership was about likeness, right? Like a father and son. And I feel like I maybe know a little bit about what that is like. For the longest time, I've had a great, the great honor and joy of working in partnership in lots of different contexts with my dad. I still do, okay? I say that really, but it's 97.5% arguing, right? That's really what our joyful partnership looks like most of the time. 
And in so many ways, right, we couldn't be any more different, right? I never cry. Dad cries at just about everything under the shining sun, right? I never take my shoes off. Dad rarely wears any. I like music. Dad owns a Dawson's Creek album. I don't want to wait for my life. Anyway, I love cooking. Dad hates anything that you could remotely describe as having flavor in it. In fact, he has coined the phrase when he enters your house, it smells like the Taj Mahal in here, right? He came from a generation that fixed everything themselves. I come from a generation that just calls a guy. He came from the generation for America sent men to the moon and it was a place of great dreams. I come from a generation where they elected Trump. Like we couldn't be any more different than on and on and on. And yet perhaps now, more than ever, in my mid-30s, a time in life where I know myself better than I ever have, where I probably feel most like myself, I hear more than ever how I am like him. Devastating, right? <laughs> Language, approach, his way, in lots of ways, is my way. On some deeper level, obviously, we connect. We're both, we love worship. We both have always loved that. We're both on the apostolic end of the A-Pest spectrum. We thrive on movement and purpose and things going forward. We both just long for others to be captivated by Jesus in the way that he has got a hold of our lives. We're both agitated people. We both value hard work and commitment and family and on and on and on. You see what I'm trying to say? is that the partnership of father and son that is built on likeness, is born out of likeness, but that likeness is rooted at a deeper level. There is likeness in joyful partnership, but it is at a deeper level. You see, Paul and Timothy were probably nothing alike. Paul was significantly older. Their backgrounds were different. Their cultural upbringing and education were different. Their personalities were different. And yet, Paul says in verse 22, because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. Notice he says, with me. Not he has served me. He served with me. So what was it for Paul? What was the deeper level of connection? Paul and Timothy both lived out, of a, they lived out a passion for obedience to Christ, right? It marks both of their lives. It is in many ways that deeper sense of connection. And for Paul and Timothy, this passage tells us it really looks like three things. Number one, Paul was submitted to God's way for his life. So, for example, you see that in verse 23 and 24. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. You see, when it comes to Timothy's mission, it was I hope. But when it comes to Paul's mission, it was I am confident or I trust, and depending on which interpretation you look at. And here's the thing, right? That's all the more amazing whenever the matter in hand for Timothy was whether or not he stays or goes, right? That's not that important, comparatively speaking, right? And yet he hopes. And yet for Paul, he trusts. But the matter in hand was one of life or death. He hopes for Timothy's sake. And he trusts for his own. He is in prison. 
He's trusting whether he lives or dies. He's not writing that he's trusting in the legal system or he's trusting in Roman courts or citizenship to see him freed. He is trusting the Lord. And Paul and Timothy both evidence this in their life. The first thing they connect on is that they're submitted to God's way for their lives. The second thing is Paul was submitted to God's way of service. He did what the Lord called him to, basically. When you look at Paul's life, that's pretty much the story. He goes where he's sent. He kind of follows God's leading for his life. And in Philippians 1.1, he calls himself a slave to the work of God. Timothy would be the same. One commentator calls him the patron saint of all who are happy to finish second just so long as they can serve. He submitted to God's way of service. And both of them were the same. And thirdly, Paul was, God, Paul was submitted to God's way for relationships. I've just been listening through to the Who Killed Mars Hill podcast that um, lots of people are listening to right now, and it makes one thing abundantly clear. It is possible to be a Christian, to go after the kingdom, to see lives transformed and people restored and all of the good stuff that when we're looking in, peering in from the outside of the church and we're seeing, seeing incredible transformation, it is possible to be and do all of those things and yet speak a different gospel with our lives and our attitudes to other Christians. It's possible to be somebody who speaks out big stuff and sees big stuff and that play out a completely different gospel when it comes to how we speak about each other. For Paul, it meant sending the church in Philippi his best. They got his best, and that meant that he sent Timothy. He wanted them to have his best, so he sent them Timothy. That was easy to write and hard to do. It cost him. It hurt him. He lost out. And then he sent them back, as we'll see in a minute, Epaphroditus as well, even though he really, really needed him. And Timothy was that way too. Verse 20, I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. He's like me. He'll send you his best. Joyful partnership. First thing it's about is about likeness. Joyful partnership is born out of likeness. As we look around the room today, this room, I don't mean abstract room, I mean this room. You are here at this church today. I don't know lots of you. I'm not sure of your stories. I'm not sure about what has led you here. I'm not sure about the journey of faith and all of its ups and downs. I'm not sure about what position you're in, about how well it's going or how difficult life is right now. But one way or another, you are here in this church community this morning. And as you look around the room, at people who come from different backgrounds, nationalities, have different passions, abilities, different baggage. Joyful partnership is about seeing not our difference, but seeing our likeness. It's about seeing our likeness. It's about digging a bit deeper than just the labels people are wearing or the, the kind of stage that they're at in life. It's about digging deeper than that. We are so quick to burn community. I realize I'm saying that to people who are at church this morning, right? But we're so quick to burn community, to walk away, to distance ourselves as it suits us, to contain ourselves and hold back, to long for partnership, to come to us, but be unwilling to give of ourselves to get it. Do as the culture tells us to do and cut it off as it seeks to change you. We are the community of the redeemed. We're the community of the broken, the community of Jesus. 
And we are called to partnership in what he has done and partnership in what he is doing. And therefore, there is likeness. We just need to look a little deeper. There is more likeness in this room than you know. Father was the first picture. It turns out father and son is about likeness. But the second picture is brother. The second picture is brother. These are these verses 25 to 30. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier, who's also your messenger whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you in his distress because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him and not, not on him only, but also on me to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. So then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help that you yourselves could not give me. And so the third character in this passage is Epaphroditus. He had come to faith in Philippi itself. He was from a Greek background. In fact, he's exactly the sort of person who at one point Paul would almost certainly have called a Gentile dog, right? And to a Northern Irish reader, right, as we all are today, you know we're this default suspicious of things written about people that are too nice, right, aren't we? We kind of have this setting in us that as soon as somebody is too nice about someone, we're like, hmm. We're, we're that people that we're, we're reading or hearing good things about people. We are trying to find the reasons behind the scenes that everything is not quite as good as it looks, right? Northern Ireland is the people of, yeah, but is he happy, right? We are those people. And if it feels like Paul is going over the top uh, to speak about how great a guy Epaphroditus is, if it feels like that, it's probably because he is. He is doing that at this point in the passage. The question is, why? So as Jess was talking about last week, okay, um, Paul was in prison. And unlike today's prison environment, okay, in Paul's day there was no provision in prison, okay? So you were basically locked up and that was it, right? So he's in prison. There's no provision. In other words, there wasn't even food. That was provided by family and friends, people who came to tend to you and provide for you. And this was Epaphroditus to Paul, right? Verse 25, whom you sent to take care of my needs. The Philippian church had sent him there to provide for Paul whilst he was in prison in Rome. But not only that, he was also sent to stay with him afterwards too. You see, this was a hugely courageous thing whenever you think about it, right? He wasn't just like the guy sent to take the packed lunch every day. He was sent to tend to a guy who was up for a charge that could have potentially led to the death sentence. It just so happens you don't really want to be associated with people like that in the Roman world of the time. It would be very easy for them to say, execute him and him as well because he's with him, right? That would have been easy to happen. So it's a courageous thing. But the passage tells us that while he's away from home, he gets both homesick and really, really sick. In fact, he nearly dies. And so with those two things in mind, Paul sends him home again when he was well enough to go. But knowing what we know about relationships, right? And the kind of contractual and kind of honor that was with relationships in the day. And situations like this to return home early would only have made him look like a quitter. He sent them to do something. It's based on deep relationship with this leader. He comes home early, you just look like a quitter. 
He just looked like somebody who couldn't hack it anymore. Don't really want to be around the prison every day. Kind of fed up. That's what you look like. So Paul writes this about him. So then welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honor people like him because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. It's glowing. In fact, this whole section of the passage is just glowing about this man. It's not duty or begrudging. It's, it's incredibly warm, generous, and heartfelt writing. He is his brother, co-worker, and fellow soldier. He's glowing about him. And it's real, right? It's not just put on. It's not just a series of nice things that he's writing about somebody he doesn't actually know. He cares deeply about this guy. And he uses two terms that are really interesting. The first term that he uses that we read as messenger is apostolos. And yes, that's the same word Paul used for the apostles. It does mean messenger. That's right. In the general sense, apostolos meant messenger. But we in the Christian world obviously take it to mean something a bit more significant than that. Possibly, depending on which way you interpret the passage, Paul is elevating him to apostolos status. And then the words, whom you sent to take care of my needs, okay? They include the word leotergos, okay? One commentator calls this a magnificent word, a magnificent word. And the reality was these were a group of people, the leotergos, okay? They really, they were wealthy men mostly and they played this role in civic society where they paid to put on events and, and paid for things that, for, that were for the wider public's joy, Things like musicals or plays, or they paid for athletes to kind of train themselves up. They were, it was for the joy of a whole city. Why am I telling you this about these two titles? I'm telling you this because Paul takes a great Christian title, and he takes a great Greek title, and he gives it to Epaphroditus. He takes a great title from the Christian world, and a great title from the Greek world. And he gives it to someone who they could have termed was a quitter. He gives it to someone that he really, really needed. But he looks beyond himself to lift up another. There is incredible humility on show here. Incredible generosity. Incredible lightness. And there is lightness in joyful partnership. When I left uni, I applied to the Citibank Grad Management Scheme. And like all these things, if any of you have applied for the, these sorts of schemes before, whether it was central services or it was whoever, right, there's a very lengthy application period. In fact, it kind of took something like nine months to come through the application process. And one part of that was an afternoon of testing in group scenarios, right? So I get, we go to this building near Queens, we're dumped into these teams, we're given tasks, and it's one of those weird things where you're in a pretty small room and there's like a person in each of the four corners, and they're observers, right? And they're, you know, they got their little notebook and everything you say, they jot things down, and you're like, oh, flip, should I have said that? Should I not have said it? If I do nothing, can I be inconspicuous enough that they don't notice? Or if I step up, is, it, is that bad? So you're never really sure how to play things. And they put scenarios in a table and you have to solve a problem. So I'm in this room with people I've never met, okay? And I vividly remember one of the tasks in teams, one guy taking the lead. I think he was trying to impress, right? He probably shouldn't have. He probably should have taken a back seat. But 
he's that guy that's like, I'm doing it, I'm the leader, steps straight into the void to become the leader of our group. He makes a total horlicks of that particular challenge that we were meant to do, okay? And at the end of it, there was kind of this thing at the end of each of these uh, like little scenarios where you had this opportunity to feed back and these four observers would ask, you know, well, how did that go and, and what did you think and did it go well, did it not go well and all of that sort of stuff. And th- there was this girl who was seated next to me at this point and I remember her so vividly. Like the second they stopped the challenge and they said, well, would anybody like to say anything? She just could not wait to get the words out of her mouth and she's like straight in there, I just want to say that he in no way represents my opinions. And then like she goes on and she's like, everything he did, I wouldn't have done. And she starts like just hammering this guy. He's like, just sat there. And she's like, she won't even look at him. She's like this all the time. He did this and he did this and I wouldn't have done. And he just smashes him, right? She goes on and on and on and on, running this guy into the ground. It was like something out of The Apprentice, right? Except it's way more awkward when you're in the room, right? You're not laughing at it when it's happening three feet to your left. No humility, no generosity, and absolutely no lightness. See, here's the thing. Paul puts Epaphroditus first. And the reality is in our world, and even in the church, that is all too uncommon. So often we like to stand behind our denominations, our size, our spiritual gifts, whatever it is, in order to run other people down. We look at each other with suspicion. We hold them at arm's length. Sometimes we even might struggle to pray for other Christians, other leaders, other churches. It's like the rest of the world and this idea of game theory that the world plays by, right? If somebody else wins, I lose. So in other words, never let them win. Because if they have, then I've lost. This fear that we'll lose. And all too often our self-concern stops us from seeing the needs and celebrating the wins of the whole community, the whole church. And let's be honest, self-concern is a heavy thing, right? It's a heavy thing to carry around me, me, me all of the time. My needs, my desires, my wants, my dreams, my passions. That is a heavy thing to carry. There is no lightness there. But the way of joyful partnership is the way of lightness. We are lightest when we carry others around. William Barclay writes this. The way of the cross is on full display here. And here alone, as the gospel impacts the people of God in this way, at the core of our beings, can we expect truly to count for the gospel in a world that lives the opposite. Joyful partnership is marked by a lightness where other people come first. I see this so often, you know, when it comes to one of the great Christian buzzwords of our day, community, right? Um, it is just one of these words that we like to run off at this moment in time. And the truth is, so often that we want community, but we want it on our terms, don't we? We say we want community. Everybody wants community. Everywhere I go, we talk about community. But we want it on our terms. We want it our way. We want it to look like us and think like us and go where we're going and be made up of people exactly like us because then, you know, we'll all connect and it'll be really easy, right? And it never makes us uncomfortable and it never asks anything of us. And we take what we need and we set it down when it suits us. That's the community that we're looking for, isn't it? 
That's the community that we play out time and time and time again. It's where we care more about the idea of community or partnership than we do about the one that is right before us. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who wrote the incredible book, The Cost of Discipleship, and another book called Life Together, he wrote this, the person who loves their dream of community will destroy community, but the person who loves those around them will create community. You want to know how you get joyful partnership? Look around the room. Start loving these people. They are worth more than whatever dream you have of community. These people are your community. Start walking in lightness and loving these people and you will create community. Paul took the picture of brother and he said that there's a lightness to partnership. It's marked by giving. It's marked by elevating the other and putting them first. Joyful community doesn't work with me first, Jesus second. And joyful community doesn't work with me first, you second. Joyful community is lived with humility, built together around Jesus first, the one who calls the community and gives it its name, the one who sends us on purpose and equips us to go. All three men were joined in the mission of God. That's the thing, right? They were all servants to the gospel. Philippians says that several times. We are not just here because we like to be together or be drawn together. We are here because we are distinctive, set-apart, intimate, eschatological Jesus people. We are a people of joyful partnership on mission, together in likeness. At some deeper level, there is likeness in the room. And together in likeness, putting other people first and ourselves second, they get our best. And finally, together on purpose. But we'll get to that next week, okay? That's what next week's passage is about. I'm not going to dive into that. We'll get to there next week.